Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers what resonates with them, and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement, and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to the final episode of Climbing Consulting for 2020. As we all know, it's been a crazy year, one that we will all remember and hopefully soon be able to forget. But as with all clouds, there have been some silver linings. One of which is that it's given me the chance to bring you interviews with many guests who previously would not have been able to spare the time. Guests who've shared some fantastic advice to help you with your consulting career into 2021 and beyond. For any of those guests who are listening, and I know that some of you are, a big thank you to you for coming onto the show. And I also want to say a big thank you to you, my listeners, This series would not exist without you wanting to hear from my guests. And the fact that you've stayed with me and the podcast over this year, when there have been so many tempting things to watch on Netflix and Amazon Prime, is very much appreciated. So, who is today's guest? Who has the honour of being the final guest on Climbing Consulting in 2020? In today's episode, I speak to Tara Lajimokair, Managing Director of FT Strategies. I first heard Tara speak on another podcast, The 40-Minute Mentor, which is run by my good friend and Create Engage client, James Mitra at JBM. Having taken so much away from that interview, I knew that we had to get Tara on the show, and I was so pleased when she said yes. 
Tara's career is made up of an enviable list of prestigious global brands, having studied at both the LSE and Harvard and worked at Goldman Sachs, McKinsey, and now heading up the Financial Times consulting business, FT Strategies. While on paper, it may look like Tara has had an easy and effortless journey to the top. What makes her even more special is that her journey has been anything but. As a Nigerian woman who moved to the UK when she was eight and spent her early years growing up on a council estate in London, Tara's seen her fair share of challenges, both before entering the world of work and since, something that we go into detail on in today's show. It's her drive to succeed, despite many of the perceived challenges that may have held her back, that makes her story so special, and something that she now pays forwards in both her mentoring of underprivileged young people and her candid and compassionate perspective on the challenges that those from minority groups face in climbing to the top of our industry. Something that she was recognised for earlier this year when she was named on the 2021 Black Power List. With such an incredible story, there was so much ground for us to cover. And we go into detail on some really important topics in this conversation, including the importance of education and mentorship, and why we need to be focusing on creating more positive role models for those from minority backgrounds to follow. Climbing in McKinsey as a woman, a mother, and a person from a minority background, Tara's experience of doing so and her advice that she would give to others, looking to emulate and learn from her success. And her decision to join FT Strategies, why she decided to make the leap, and what her and the team are doing to build a consulting business that delivers great client work while creating an environment that enables everyone to succeed, regardless of their background. I don't throw around words like inspiring that often, but in this case, I think it's very well deserved. Tara is a truly inspiring role model both to women and those from minority groups looking to climbing consulting, as she is to those from the majority who want to know what they can do to help improve diversity and breed an inclusive culture across the consulting industry. With 2020 coming to an end and many of us considering what the next year holds, I know this episode will give you some real food for thought and help you start 2021 in the best possible way. So, with that rather extended intro all done and dusted, all that's left to say is sit back and enjoy my conversation with Tara Lajimakair. Tara, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nick. I'm really looking forward to this. I heard your interview by our good friends, mutual contact, James Mitra, and knew we had to get you on the show. And I'm really excited to dig into everything you've done and everything you're now doing with FT Strategy. So thank you for coming on and for making the time. Thank you for having me. So for those of my listeners who who maybe don't know you so well, it'd be great to just start with an overview of, of your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I attended the London School of Economics, um, driven by a strong interest in business and building, building things. I studied industrial relations and management. And in my penultimate year, I had the opportunity to join a number of firms that ultimately chose Goldman Sachs. Thankfully, even though I wasn't quite sure how a career in financial services fitted into my desire to to build my own business, However, I did recognize the amazing institution that GS was and is and 
the level of investment it made in its people. And I realized that I had a lot to learn from great people about myself. And I wanted to focus on that at that stage. So I, I joined and after a successful internship in my penultimate year, returned as an analyst. I spent about four and a half years with Goldman's. I got to work across divisions like investment management, human capital, and across geographies in the UK, across the continents, as well as APAC and the Americas. It was a really good global experience. And I left about four and a half years later to find myself again. I joined Harvard Business School in Boston, where I completed my MBA. And I then, after about two years, joined McKinsey, where I spent the next eight years working across a variety of projects, primarily in digital transformation and strategy across financial services, consumer and other industries. And most recently, as of March, two weeks before lockdown, to be precise, (laughs) I joined the Financial Times as a managing director to build an exciting, disruptive consultancy. Fantastic. And what a time to join a new business in any role, but particularly, you know, when you're you're coming in to lead it. Um, And we'll, I'm sure we'll come on to all of actually how that's been for you, because I imagine, yeah, it's been rather different to what you'd have planned for it to be. I'd be keen just to touch on it. And I know you didn't mention it there, but I know you covered it in James's podcast. And I, I was really keen to find out, and this might be a sort of long section, it might be short, is obviously you studied at LSE. And we all make assumptions about what that means about someone's background, where they've come from, the type of school they've gone to. And I think the thing that you talked about in James's podcast is actually you know, your childhood, how you'd come from quite an affluent part of Nigeria, come over to the UK, you know, were living with your mum in a in a council estate. And again, that's a very different sort of perspective to what I imagine people think of undergraduates at LSE and, and MBA candidates. I'd, I'd love to just understand almost how that period shaped you and and led you to make those sort of decisions, like you said, about that desire to build something. Did that come from that period? Was that something that came later in life? And and almost how did that lead you to, to the LSE and the career you've gone on to since? It probably came from absolutely that period, but also even earlier. I grew up in quite an interesting household. My father was a successful group captain in the Air Force. And, you know, we weren't by no means the wealthiest. You know, when you think of your stereotypical rich Nigerian military leader, we, you know, weren't extremely wealthy, but we were absolutely, you know, living a very comfortable life. Some might even say privileged. I I had everything um, that I, I needed really access to really good education, domestic staff, etc. And as you said, when my parents separated, my mom left with literally nothing to rebuild her life in the UK. Um, and that was hard. I, I joined her several years later and it was not only a shock moving, as you said, from you know a relatively exclusive, gated, nice community to a council estate, which was you know a perspective on the UK, on life in general that I hadn't been exposed to. 
But it was also a shock on other dimensions, you know, being a black person in Nigeria, being part of the majority to being a minority in the UK. Also, actually, growing up in a very strong female household, I was one of five girls and um, with a father who wow. had sort of protected us, actually, for a long time, but also instilled in us this mindset of anything is absolutely possible and you are just as capable and just as able. So being female is always something that wasn't really a label, but actually, again, I started to uncover interesting perspectives on some of the disadvantages that females or stereotypes um, that were associated with that particular gender. And then finally, I think that work ethos as well, which is actually Mm. a great thing and absolutely links to your question, the ability to start to take control of creating the life, the future that I wanted was something that I absolutely grabbed and embraced. And I think, you know, two things for me that really helped me make the choices that I think led me to where I am today. One is combining this amazing opportunity, right, to be in the UK with its world-class education and more stable infrastructure. That was something that I absolutely was grateful for and truly embraced with, on the other hand, the values that had been instilled in me from a very young child growing up in Nigeria, where you quickly develop a strong sense of grit and determination. So that passion for excellence, that relentless focus on trying to do the best that you can in every situation Mm. um, and overcoming whatever life throws at you, whatever challenges you might face, were values that I think I was able to dwell on, I was able to use to start to think about, okay, how do I build a better future? Education is a great way to invest in talent and to prove yourself. So yeah, so I think those two sets of experiences and values, if you will, absolutely help me build a a foundation to allow me to continue to grow. Fantastic to hear. And I think, you know, those values that you say, I mean, for anyone listening, those are, are so powerful. And obviously to have them sort of instilled in you so early, I think, you know, that point around women can do anything they want and you know, gender is, isn't a label that should hold you back and, and that focus on you know, education. And that point around the, you know, the education and achievement piece, obviously sort of LSE is you know, the top of the top in, in institutions in this country. Was that always sort of, do you remember looking back as a sort of teenager, was that always for you just that drive of I'm going to get to the best university? Was there you know, something that you know, through your mum and your sisters almost, you know, they kept you motivated? And again, I It feels a bit of a stereotype, but you look at the admissions around sort of those from disadvantaged backgrounds versus those from privileged backgrounds in places like LSE, and and they're very much skewed towards those who have been to private schools. So I'm just interested in in how over those teenage years when, you know, there'll be lots of distractions, probably lots of people trying to take you down different paths in terms of where your life goes, almost how did you keep that focus? Was it really simple? Were there any sort of turning points for you? I'd just love to find out. Yes, is the short answer. I think that for me, you're absolutely right. There is something about being part of a minority 
and growing up in a Nigerian community where, you know, even though I, I went to a relatively, you know, good school, the fact that, you know, I remember walking into the LSE library, which was relatively new at the time, so maybe not the fairest example of English university libraries at that time but nevertheless it was amazing it was new it had everything you wanted (laughs) I just remember being absolutely in awe of the amount of resources and reflecting on you know my sisters who went to university in Nigeria and talking to them about how I could go there for you know 24 hours and it would be open (laughs) just little things like that that a shaped my perspective on how fortunate I was Mm. but also b was able to um, take those values on hard work on learning on investing in yourself on wanting to be the best in every single facet so academically I was incredibly competitive and just being good wasn't acceptable and um, mm. it was all about doing my absolute best to be the best because I recognized the potential that I had but also the unique position that I was in to be an example a role model mm. I remember you know at, at college I went to Clapham College in in Lambeth that time Clapham wasn't as fancy as it is now <laughs> but I remember you know speaking to so many talented amazing driven even friends of mine relatives of mine even who were at college and I'd have discussions around you know what university should we think about going to and you know, some of them would say things like, oh, of course you can't apply to the LSC or Oxford. There's no one like us there and we wouldn't fit in. We probably wouldn't be accepted. And, you know, some people even said things like it would be so much easier to get pregnant and get a council flat um, than to try and fight, you know, the injustice or the big challenges that you would face as someone who, you know, didn't go to public school or didn't have the right accents. So mm. I, I think, you know, one of the things there that, that would probably have played a pivotal role in changing the outlook and the narrative for so many of my classmates and peers really was having more role models. So mm. I, I saw that as an opportunity to really start to change the narrative and start to show other people behind me, next to me, that if you work hard, if you commit to doing the best that you can, then you can absolutely go to whatever institution you set your mind to and get to whatever levels you deserve. I think that's so powerful, Tara, and I think that role model point, I mean, as we're talking about James earlier, the the whole purpose of his podcast and the 40 minute mentor is, is to give that, that role modeling to people. And exactly like you said, having people from the the same background, the same, you know, the same journey as you who have achieved it has obviously been pivotal to you. And I think, you know, is the same in, in life, wherever you come from and wherever you're going. It's partly why I, I do this podcast, because to your point, you know, the thing that shocked me having now worked in consulting is, is how it's not all the same. And while there is still probably too many white men like me running consulting firms I'm not running a consulting firm obviously but you know the vast majority of people are white men actually having role models like yourself who are showing that that's not the only type of person who can succeed in consulting I think thinks a fantastic thing 
I'm mindful of, of our time, and I'd, I'd love to come back to role models if we can, but I also want to spend some time on on the journey that you've you've been on since the LSE. And I guess almost moving to sort of starting at, at McKinsey, you know, you'd, you'd had phenomenal success at Goldman's, you'd gone and done your MBA, you know, you'd, you've got the perfect career, you could go and do anything. I'm also quite conscious in the back of my mind that banking does pay better than consulting. And I guess, you know, I'm not saying that's the judgment everyone makes, but I'd love to understand, you know, you were there, you'd, you'd, you could go back into banking. I'm sure there were tons of options. What was it that made you decide, you know what, actually, I want to go and do consulting? What was it about that that drew you to McKinsey? You're absolutely right. Banking does pay <laughs> better than consulting. So that was a very important factor that I considered. What ultimately led me down the consulting path was my future ambition, which was long-term building and running a successful venture. Mm. Didn't still quite know what that was at the time. Probably still don't know what it is now. I feel like I'm doing part of it with the FT. However, I recognized that I still had A, a lot to learn, and B, I wanted to gain as much experience outside of financial services. So I had, you know, a really tempting offer to go back to GS and, as you say, a few other things as well. But not only did I decide on consulting, but I, I selected McKinsey because of those two reasons, you know, having access to in a relatively short space of time, different types of organizations across different sectors, across really interesting, complex, diverse problems. So I knew that I would absolutely stretch myself on a professional level. Mm. But also personally, going back to our theme of excellence, I wanted to work for you know, what I consider to be one of the best firms in the industry, maybe, you know, full stop even. So again, I, I recognized that I would have access to incredible training, mentoring, the ability to, to work alongside really talented, driven people. So I wanted to also invest in that side of my personal journey. Mm. And actually, I didn't really articulate it this way you know 10 years ago but I think network is something which I've also benefited from you know if I'm being very crude isn't something that people talk a lot about I think we tend to want to you know paint things as purely meritocratic and theoretical even right where you go in you work hard and based on that you progress but I, I you know, recognize that the world we live in, it's just as important to know the right people as well. You know, not for any sort of corrupt reasons, but A, as I said, you know, to sort of continue to learn and develop. But B, you know, I think we work in consulting in a relationships business. You know, that is ultimately what this boils down to. It's about being able to build trust with people mm. so that people you know, trust you enough to be able to share their, you know, deepest concerns or dreams or goals, whether it's at an organizational level or, you know, in their roles. And you as a consultant are in a privileged position of understanding where they are, 
what they are wrestling with and where they're trying to get to and then being able to use that to create the most successful solutions experiences help them build their confidence and capabilities to help them get to their goals is what we do as consultants so I think you know being able to access those relationships being able to leverage that trust is something really powerful that I think I was able to do as well at McKinsey or learn to do at McKinsey. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I really do want to come on to the building the business side because it'll, it'll tie us nicely to what you're doing now. I think that point on on excellence is key. And, and also networks, it's, it, it ties a little, I think, to your point on, on role models is I think at school we're taught that meritocracy and, and exam results is is everything you need in life. And while it's a key element, you need that excellence. I think to that point around equality or, or reducing inequality, actually the improved building the network is then what helps you in that adult life. You know, I think that's I've had the same realization. You know, the completely agree. It, and and if I may add, I'd say, you know, it's not just at a commercial level, right, where you are trying to grow business and client work. It's also internally. And that's something that I struggled with and I see a lot of minority groups, right? Not just racial minority but, or gender even, but, you know, religious or educational, you know, people who didn't go to the right institutions struggle with, right? And it's not having access, you know, naturally to, you know, the group that then means that you are part of the decision-making or it's easier for you to have conversations about what projects to get staffed on so you know I think working even hard which is something which I probably did a lot later than I I should have in my professional career working hard and getting sponsorship and getting those relationships to help you progress whilst recognizing that as you say delivering and being excellent is a prerequisite right you should never and that's something that I'm very vocal about people who think that they can somehow bypass meritocracy and not work as hard as the next person, but then rely on the relationships to get far. That really, really, really annoys me. So I think, you know, first and foremost, you absolutely have to deliver on the job. and You have to be excellent at what you do. But also I, I recognised quite quickly that building and investing in relationships to help you on that journey is quite important. Completely agree. And I think the old adage of what or who is wrong, it's what you know and who you know that, that become the combination. And I think to exactly the point you've just mentioned, and I'd love you to, I guess, answer this in terms of your story, but equally the advice you give to other women, other mentees from, from minority groups in, in our industry. The thing that struck me in sort of your journey is actually you climbed very fast at McKinsey and it's well known for its you know, reasonably aggressive up or out culture. You climbed, you, you chose to leave for, for FT strategies and, and to pursue growing that business. But I'd love to just get your advice for anyone who's entering a, a McKinsey or, or one of their similar competitors on what they should be doing. And if it's just everything you've just said, but do it, you know, we can move on very quickly. But I'd love to understand if there's anything else that really helped you over those nine years to to build the career you had there. So I have to clarify first, I, I didn't progress as quickly as I should have, and many of my peers actually, for a number of reasons. One was I... <laughs> Went on maternity leave nine months into the role. So I literally, in week one, 
realised that I was expecting after we had just arrived from honeymoon, which was not the plan. And then after I came back about a year later, uh, then I was off on maternity leave um, shortly after to have twins. So wow. I started off the first three years of my McKinsey career with young children, um, which is you know hard in most jobs, certainly. It was at McKinsey, for sure. So I, I was always sort of balancing what some people might <laughs> insensitively refer to as the mummy track versus the partner track. This is an actual phrase that was used. Wow, what really in, in public people would got Yeah, I mean, it's not formal. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's a reflection of how things operate. But certainly, I think there was a misconception by some people that you know as a consultant with young children it would be hard to go or get to partner via the traditional route and you probably wanted to do a few part-time stints take things a bit easy etc so pace yourself and to be fair to McKinsey they were acting on quite constructive feedback from, you know, lots of initiatives around trying to promote a more manageable, balanced way of working, particularly for returning moms. And I think one of the suggestions was actually the up or out culture is probably not reflective of how many, you know, a sizable number of people, and not actually just moms, actually, even working dads as well, wanted to build their path to partner um, people wanted to have flexibility options, etc. So, you know, in a way, slightly fair. Some people wanted to take things easier. And it was nice that we had that option. But, you know, but also for people like me, I did want to progress quickly sometimes. And other times I just wanted to be more present, even if that meant, you know, risking getting to the next level as quickly as I thought I would want to. I think the other reason was, prioritizing the wrong things. So back to our point around, I thought it was all about keeping my head down, doing a really good job. And then whatever time I had was running out to get to, you know, bedtime or bath time before the children went to bed. But actually, whilst that was important, I think that I probably should have recognized that there was an element of, you know, making the CST drinks, right, to network with the senior partners who were deciding who to put on that, you know, really high profile project that would give me the exposure that I needed to the promotions committee, right? So there are a number of choices that I made that I think absolutely meant that it took me, I'd say, well, you know, an extra two or three years to get to associate partner. And probably the final thing to highlight was uncertainty, I, I was always thinking, okay, do I stay, you know, do two years, have the sort of McKinsey badge and move on to something else? Or do I stay on and make partner? And whilst, you know, there are certain times I felt like, actually, this is what I wanted. I can see this happening. There were also other times where I wasn't sure, either because I wasn't clear on if the firm would foster an environment for someone like me to be successful. I wasn't sure in my own ability but what that meant was it manifested as uncertainty and probably not the sort of commitment that a senior partner who is thinking about, am I going to try and make this person partner quickly, was looking for. Mm. So having said all of that, I would say some of the lessons and advice based on my experience would be, one, be very clear what you want and get the sponsorship that is essential to getting you to 
where you want to be. And when I say be very clear, yes, be clear in your mind. And yes, there will be times where you're not sure or you change your mind or, you know, whatever it might be. However, recognize, and this will vary by culture, but certainly for my previous firm, recognize that it's all about your story. I remember, you know, going into review season and I would say, well, I, I delivered, you know, 20% increase in revenue and da, 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 da for this project and da, 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 da. And I contributed to all these things. And my brilliant evaluator at the time would say, Tara, put the paper down and talk to me. Tell me about your story. Inspire me. And you have to inspire people with your own narrative. You almost have to build the brand that you want people to recognize and scream about and you need to continue to invest in that brand of course with evidence so don't make stuff up that isn't completely true but it's it's actually a really interesting exercise to say you know and she said when I walk into these review meetings what do you want people to already be thinking when they see your name before I even start speaking? So, you know, a year in advance, I would say to my mentees, literally think about the review meeting at the end of the year or think about the introduction at the conference, whatever the context might be, and think about what you want people to say and describe it in the most compelling and inspiring of words you know I I remember I would say things like well clients say I'm really good with building rapport and mobilizing and she would say things like Tara people would say you're a client whisperer (laughs) I was like well so, so there's an element of really painting this vision of who you are and what you stand for and the impact you make And then working backwards from that to say, okay, if I want people to say I'm a client whisperer (laughs) or something less (laughs) cringeworthy, what do I have to be doing now? And what that means is it allows you prioritize opportunities as well, right? So I went from just taking whatever I was given to actually almost sometimes aggressively going out to partners and saying, I want to be on that project because this is how it fits into my portfolio and this is how it fits into my narrative. So the first thing, as I said, is be very clear on who you are, what you want your brand to be, and then ruthlessly focus on creating that brand and creating the opportunities. And then the second part is about allies. People make the promotion decisions, right? People make the decisions that lead to promotions. So the projects, the client opportunities, et cetera. So investing as much in meeting the right people, getting them to support you, getting them to be your allies in different ways was a skill set that I wasn't, didn't really come naturally to me, but I learned was very, very important. And I started to invest in, and by the way, you know, sponsorship is very different to mentoring. Mm. which is something that I got confused by, you know, quite regularly. My mentor and actually sponsor, who's the managing partner of the UK office, Dame Divian Hunt, would say, you know, a mentor is someone who would say, here is how you get from A to B level. But a sponsor is someone who will hold your hand and walk with you, open the doors to get you to point B. 
And that's exactly what you need to be focusing on. It's finding the people who are going to pick up the phone and speak to the staffing manager who are going to think about how they'll carve the opportunity on a particular client project who they're going to take the risk to say, okay, I'm going to give you this senior client relationship to help you grow in this particular area. So sponsorship is absolutely pivotal as well. Fantastic advice. I, I love the story you've told about how, how you came to both of those as well. Yeah, the, the phrase client whisperer amuses me, amuses me greatly. But I think, you know, Tari, you've hit on some super powerful points and, and things I think too often, like you said, you in your own journey, you know, people think it's about just what you do. And it's not the, the how you do it, the story, the you know, building the journey you want to go on. And I think some really key points. I want to bring us forward. And I think probably a nice segue from there. And actually, how sort of what you're doing now came about how you decided that the role was for you. I know one of the themes we've talked through our conversations about you wanted to build something. And so part of me thinks, well, it's obvious you you were offered this opportunity to build a consulting firm. But to your point, you, you were, whether it was a, a certainty or not, you know, you were approaching partnership at at McKinsey. And I'd love to understand how the how the FT strategies opportunity came about and the questions you asked yourself, or, or maybe you, you mentioned Dame Vivian, your mentor, you know, what did you ask her about whether this was the right decision for you and, and how did you decide ultimately that it was? It was a really difficult decision because I talked about this roller coaster of mindsets of I'm going to stay and make it all the way to senior partner. I can see myself doing this to actually I'm itching to do more. If I think about you know, Tara, the LSE undergrad who wanted to build, wanted to build her own thing. Yes, I do have some entrepreneurial opportunities to, you know, build new propositions and teams at McKinsey, but it's not quite the same as having, you know, PL responsibility and everything that I'm doing with clients, doing that myself. So um, so I was sort of oscillating over the years between those two states of mind. And it would have been such an easier decision if I was in the, you know, the the former, right? This is it. You're going to, you know, go and do something else now. But actually, I was in a pretty good position at the time where I had a very clear path you know, all the way to senior partner, I had sponsors finally. And I was really enjoying the work and learning and growing. So this opportunity sort of, I think, came through very randomly a text message. And I thought to myself, oh, Financial Times, I know nothing about media. But also, I was just coming back from holiday, and I'd gone through a, a period of reflection. And I thought to myself, okay, I think you're going to stay at McKinsey. I think you're comfortable with that decision. However, I think you should just have a few conversations to understand what's out there, which is something that I recommend people do regularly. I think it's always nice to, you know, test the waters, understand what's in the market, you know, if only to sort of inform your thinking on, okay, what would it take to make me content with where I am today? So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be looking to leave, but actually it could mean that you discover elements of other roles that you think you're missing and you could ultimately create. And if anything, actually, that was another takeaway for me, which is I probably should have had conversations about my constant state of do I go or do I stay with people. But I felt like after being burned, that would sort of give people the wrong impression about my level of commitment. But when I did start to tell people at McKinsey, by then I'd sort of made my mind up. 
people did offer ways to help me create a more balanced life at McKinsey to basically address some of the um, the concerns that I had. So my other piece of advice is speak with people that you trust. You're absolutely right. You know, not everyone is going to hear that and think, oh my gosh, she's committed. I'm going to sort of invest in her. So be very selective. So ultimately, I, I, I had a few conversations with people at the FT. I actually started off thinking, Do you know what, I think would be a good way to revitalize my interviewing skills which are quite rusty now so I went in with that mindset definitely still intrigued though because I thought oh this sounds fairly innovative what they're trying to do to build a consulting firm in an established business but also to do it in a really interesting way so I had a few conversations the more I learned the more I fell in love with the role and the people and to your question around what were the sort of deciding factors I think first and foremost for me I absolutely thought that the people and the mission of the FT was captivating and that's a mission that's reflected in FT strategies which is to really make a difference and to sort of go against the status quo that completely aligned with my own values the second thing was I wanted to build a culture that allowed people of any background in any situation to be able to thrive. And whilst I recognize that, you know, McKinsey and many other large organizations that I respect have done a phenomenal job of making a lot of progress in creating more balance and, you know, the opera out culture that you mentioned, you know, there's definitely far more versions of how to be successful now. I still longed for that opportunity to be able to create a working environment that allowed me balance all of those multiple responsibilities as a mom, as a sister, as a passionate cook and traveler, which I'm not doing a lot of now, and a professional who wanted to be successful. Um, And I I recognize that it took a, a pretty unique culture to be able to do that. So that was the other thing that I was incredibly attracted to. And then finally, a disruptive form of consulting, which is something that I just hadn't really seen in the industry after almost a decade in it. I was very excited by the ability to take real time live subject matter experts who are actually doing the solutions, the ideas, the tactics, the strategies for an existing business 24-7 and working in a very experimental way. So agile testing and learning is a key tenet of how we work. So those two quite distinctive attributes really got me thinking, Tara, you always wanted to build, that's a tick. As a leader, you always wanted to create a culture that allows people to thrive, that's another tick. And you always want to do something innovative and disruptive. And that's a big, big tick. So it's progressed from being, a, oh, this is a tough decision to a relatively easy one when I went through those factors. It sounds like an amazing opportunity that, to your point, sort of ticked all those boxes. And I think your advice to others of keeping your ears and eyes open for that reason is is critical. I, I'd love to, Tara, because there was so much in there that I'd love to talk about. And I know we've only got a finite amount of time. So... I'm going to ask what is probably a very 
broad and big question, and I want you to take it sort of to the key points that you see, because you hit on something when you were talking about your time at McKinsey and, and almost, I think, the, the inspiration for you around you want to create an environment that I think your words were foster an environment for people like you to be successful and everything you've talked about around actually the the commercial mission of the the FT strategies business around being disruptive, being a new consulting model. I would love to understand you know, in terms of where you've been since March and looking forward to the next year and beyond. How do you see that vision coming together? How, how do you see the business getting to a point where you have the culture that is as inclusive and, and supportive and meritocratic as, as you, know, you want while delivering those commercial outcomes? And I ask in part because you know, there will be some people listening who will believe that you need some of the traditional consulting behaviors or or ways we work to be successful. And I think what you're saying is you're setting out to change that. So I'd love to understand your plan for changing that and how you're doing that at FT Strategies. In a nutshell, we're trying to do the best of both. And by no means am I suggesting that traditional consulting is fundamentally flawed. I think that there are many strong attributes of how traditional consultancies work. I think, you know, the analytical rigor, I think the independent perspective, I think, you know, those are just a few of a plethora of positive factors with that model. What I do think we're trying to do, which is quite interesting at FT Strategies, is take all of the great things about traditional consulting and then add this really interesting layer of operational thinking and problem solving, as well as a very empathetic and almost like a startup, if you will, approach to implementing solutions. So to bring that to life, we've done a number of really interesting projects. And one of the the, the things that we did was, and I'll, I'll give you an example, rapid response sprint, which is we work with a media publishing company and they want to, to solve a particular question, say, how do I improve loyalty or conversion for my audience? And what I think, you know, we do, which is traditional, is we'll try and understand the context. We'll do a bit of diagnostic, you know, look at a bunch of metrics, data, analyze all of that. So all of that analytical rigor we certainly bring to bear. But then what's interesting is we then work with the head of editorial, digital and editorial at the FT, who is literally answering that question, how do we improve loyalty for the Financial Times, and may have done that with the New York Times, and may have done that with Porsche, you know. So they have that external facing perspective, but also they have, you know, deep expertise, because they've been doing this 24-7 for the last two decades at the FT, uh, that they are able to bring, and it's real time as well, right? So it's literally saying, you know, it's not relying on, if I think about my past life, or I did a project when I was staffed on that a year ago, for example, right? And I haven't done a project in that particular topic or in that particular industry. But actually, because Renee was literally thinking about that question last week when the pandemic hit, and we're thinking, shoot, how do we adjust all of our propensity to subscribe models with the data team? 
we're able to bring those real-time insights, you know, very, very quickly. And when we then get on to, okay, how do we then implement this, right, in the newsroom, as an example, we don't just rely on our PowerPoint slides to say, you know, here are the 10 best practices for how you change culture. We have done that. We've been on that journey. So we know all of the intangibles that come with the obvious challenges that we have to navigate, you know, the politics and the cultural factors, etc. And then we can quickly save time from all of the mistakes and the lessons that we've learned to help you mobilize the team quickly, to help you align stakeholders quickly, etc. So being able to rely on that firsthand frontline experience but also that very empathetic, agile way of working is something which I think is, is quite unique and truly quite disruptive. But also because I think we are able to zoom in very quickly on what matters due to our you know enormous amount of operational experience, it allows us to work in a far, I think, smarter way. So I think we're a lot more effective and efficient, which means, going back to my earlier point, that I'm able to, without compromising performance, also deliver on a more manageable, healthier way of Mm. working. I think a really exciting summary and... Definitely, I'll pick up with you sort of offline and after because I'd love to hear more more about FT strategies and the approach you're taking. And I think your your last point is really powerful as well, is actually the benefit of doing it in the way you describe is not just a client benefit, but actually it means people aren't staying till whatever time in the day or the, the night doing PowerPoints and, and slide decks because there, there's a smarter way that you know, you're trying to foster. So Tara, last two questions then, and these are ones I ask all of my guests and would love to get your perspective on. So the first one is actually about books. So you talked about right back at the start of our conversation, you know, your your sort of thirst for knowledge, your drive for education and learning and how that's a key, you know, a key success element for you. It's something that's really, really stuck with you. And I'd love to get your take to find out what is the book or books that have either had the biggest impact on you personally or you find yourself now giving or recommending to your team most often? I would say two. And actually, I haven't recommended any books to my team. <laughs> um, I should do that. It's a good reminder. But my past teams I have, I would say two. One is Nelson Mandela's autobiography. And then another is Subscribed, which is the Zora book on the subscription economy. The Nelson Mandela biography, because I think he is such an inspiring example of leadership. Mm. Um, And I think people kind of think of Mandela and, and others as, you know, inspiring leaders, but not necessarily in a business context. But actually, I think he demonstrates very clearly what courage means. And I think in business, particularly when you seek to do something that's different or unique or stay true to your values, I think courage is usually something that I run to. So I I, I love that for that particular reason. And subscribe, because what we do at FC Strategies is usually around innovating business models and we have had a lot of success at the FT and with our clients on subscription business models. And I think 
it's not just about subscription as a business model, but actually for me, it's something far more fundamental and important, which is building valuable relationships with your consumers. So it's how do you think about building those direct relationships and think about how you engage people at an intrinsic level to ultimately build long lasting relationships, but also to future proof your business. Two fantastic recommendations. I've actually not read either of them, but I think of everything you've said, they'll be going onto my Kindle tonight because I think, yeah, the, the, the timeless story of Mandela and the you know, the story of today for subscription businesses, I think both great recommendations. And then the final question, Tara, and this could be a wrap up or a roundup of things you've already said. It could be you know something that you, you want to add for the people I'm about to mention, but it, the question is quite simply, you've got three people in front of you. You can give one piece of advice to each. The, the first is take yourself just leaving LSE, you know, your, your first analysts at McKinsey, the, the real junior end just starting their career in consulting. The second person is someone at that sort of middle grade. So maybe you, when you join McKinsey, you know, just after your MBA, the sort of manager level in the parlance side. No, I, I think the strategy houses use a slightly different terminology principle, maybe. And then the final person would be really where you were, I guess, six months ago, you know, someone who's on that track towards partner, they're trying to decide, do I stay in the firm I'm in? Do I branch out and do something? Do I build a business? And the, as I say, the question is quite simply, what one piece of advice would you give to each? Very tough question. I'll take a crack. First person, just starting out in consulting, I would say, learn, learn as much as you possibly can. Don't be too precious about sectors or dream clients make sure that you prioritize learning new skills new experiences ideally that would allow you to build a solid foundation that can take you in different directions the person who's four to five years in i would say invest in your brand and your portfolio your brand being what you think is a fair reflection of who you are, what you've accomplished and your potential, but also where you can get to, where you want to get to and work back from that if you can. So if you want to be the most successful, innovative thought leader in retail banking, what are the proof points that people will refer to, to substantiate that, and then go after those. Use that as a way of prioritizing how you spend your time, the types of projects you focus on, the types of people that you work with. And finally, approaching partner, uh, this is one that I probably gave to myself, which is, it's an amazing opportunity. Make sure that you are going into it with the right reasons or for the right reasons, but also with the right understanding of the trade-offs. There is no perfect role um, as much as we like to believe. So there will always be potential downsides, risks, but make sure that you are comfortable with those risks and make sure that you are able to build the life that you deserve. You've earned it at that point. So you should be able to live a life that allows you to 
do what you want professionally, but also personally for the most part. Some brilliant advice, Tara, and I think a great place for us to to close off today. All that's left for me to ask then is for anyone who's listened to this, likes the sound of FT Strategies, the business you're building, wants to find out more about yourself, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Thank you. If you are interested, we are very excited to hear from you. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, either directly, um, Tara Lajimore Care, or you can join, follow us on FT Strategies on our LinkedIn page, follow all of the insights that we're collecting. But also, if we have any opportunities, should you be interested in working with us, collaborating with us in some way, we'd absolutely love to hear from you. Amazing, Tara. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed it. And all that's left to say is enjoy the rest of your week. And thank you very much. Thank you so much, Nick. Pleasure to be on this. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Climbing Consulting. If you have any guest recommendations, comments, ideas, thoughts on how I can make this show better for you, just drop me an email. It's nick at createengage.co.uk and I really look forward to hearing from you.